Well, we're going to jump into our study of, uh, of Revelation this morning. It's going to be a little bit different than what you're accustomed to over the last uh, 32 weeks that we've been studying Revelation in that I'm going to read a large chunk of the section that we're looking at this morning um, before explaining it because an angel actually gives us commentary. There's a part where the angel actually says to John, let me explain this to you because it's so strange. It is such a mystery. Do you enjoy solving mysteries? Do you enjoy taking on television shows, for instance, like CSI and and following the clues and trying to figure it out? My wife loves to solve mysteries, so this is engaging for her. We're going to attempt to unfold a mystery this morning, and it's very important to our study of Revelation. Before we do that, I'm going to invite you to step into prayer with me, and we'll just pray about some things going on in the church and about our study time this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your servants this morning, uh, men and women, students, children who have had an opportunity to work and live and breathe and function this week, to raise our families and to um, be fed, to physically enjoy the things that you've given us. And we come before you with grateful hearts for your provision in our life. There's individuals, Father, who are struggling in this body with health issues, and we ask that you would be their strength and their source of encouragement. I think of Pat Honeywell and and Linda Schoen recovering from surgery and Carrie Petty. And, uh, Father, I ask that you be their strength. I think of Trina going through chemotherapy. And, uh, Father, I ask that you physically would um, embolden her, strengthen her, and encourage her heart. For those of us, Father, in this auditorium this morning, as we look into your word, we ask that you would truly give us an ability to comprehend things that are a mystery and hard to understand. But you have placed them there for a reason. I believe, Father, confidently that you have written down everything that's in your word because you want us to know more about your nature and character. So, God, I ask on behalf of each of us here this morning, that you would use your Holy Spirit to speak through me and through your word, but give us understanding so that we can know more of your ways and apply that to our life. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. show you a, a, a quote on the screen. It comes from the 1600s. Blaise Pascal is a philosopher. Pascal was also a mathematician and a physicist, a scientist. He reasoned there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. God placed within us a deep, deep desire to seek after that which would fulfill, something that would fill our hearts up. We are worshipers by design. That's the way God wired us. So we would start off this morning by asking this question. Is the world around you drawn closer to God that you observe? People around you, are they drawn closer to God? Or does it appear that the world around you is pushing God further away? Now you might ask one more layer to that question. Go down a little bit deeper. Drill just below the layer and say, which God? Okay? Because our world right now says there are many gods. There are many paths to God. That's a common part of conversation today. There are many ways to get to God. Tolerate all of them. 
you see the purple bumper stickers around, okay? Tolerance spelled out with all the symbols of world religions. Tolerate all world religions because there's many paths to God. Just because one doesn't happen to be your path doesn't mean that the other person's wrong. That's what the world would have us believe. In reality, there's only two entities that desire to be worshipped. Scripture is very, very clear. God desires to be worshipped. Satan desires to be worshipped. And because he presents himself as an angel of light, he shows up in the form of many, many other belief systems. So God says, I desire to be worshipped and you will worship me alone, that you will come to me with the heart of a worshiper. This is the way he says it. As a matter of fact, on screen, these are God's words himself. Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall fear Yahweh, hold him in awe. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Now, Jesus took it one step further and really gave us a definition for that. This is what Jesus said, John 4.23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, what my scripture says here is that God is seeking after you. The word that's used there in Greek for seek means he's literally chasing after to draw you closer to him. So when you worship him and seek him, you can't do it on your own. It's the work of the Holy Spirit drawing you closer. Now, Satan, in the same respect, being the other entity that really desires worship, also has his position about how he has ascended to this realm of being worthy to be worshipped. Isaiah wrote about this incident in time when Satan exalted himself to such a degree that he actually fell from the grace of God and fell from heaven. Let me show you on the screen. Isaiah wrote this, Isaiah 14, 13. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Only Satan in all of history, in all of the creation of the world, is the only being to ever be at such a lofty position as being the anointed cherub and exalting himself to a position where he said, I'm not content to be the anointed cherub who serves God. I will be as God. And so he exalted himself and said, I will set my throne above God and people will worship me. Creation will worship me. How in the world he envisioned that that would actually happen, I can't begin to imagine, and it's a theological point I'm not going to this morning. But he has such audacity that he actually required and asked the Son of God to worship him. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 4, 9, speaking to Jesus. And he said to him, this is Satan talking to Jesus at the temptation, 
All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Can you imagine the audacity of the created cherubim who fell to require God to worship him? So it should not be a surprise that he's asking mankind to worship him. That he would ask God to worship him. If you will fall down and worship me. Now here's what Satan understood about how mankind is created. Because Jesus was fully man, Satan understood that longing in the heart of someone who is fully man to want to worship. And so he was appealing to the need to worship to Jesus the man and Jesus the Son of God and saying, worship me, tempting him. Because we are created to be worshipers. It's true. That's the way we're made. Man is an incurable worshiper. That's the way we're designed. Not only of the true God, as you did this morning, when you celebrate with communion and when you praise through worship songs and when you study his word, we don't only worship the true God, but also other individuals have found God's small g of their own invention, haven't they? Small g gods, gods whom they say would be another path to God. Let me put it this way for you. Step back with me to the time of the Garden of Eden. Since the fall of man, man's desire to worship God has changed completely. Prior to the fall of man, prior to sin, man walked with God, sought time with God. Think of the story of the fall of man. It says that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And he cried out to Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? And Adam responded, I was afraid of you and so I hid because the fall had already taken place. But prior to that, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. Communion with God. Knowing God intimately. After the fall, They're hiding from God, no longer seeking time with him, but seeking to be away from him. So we understand that worship changed at the fall. Once with God, after the fall, away from God, not wanting to be with him. So Satan took an opportunity to see that spiritual vacuum that was in Eve's heart, saying, there's more than just worshiping God. You can be As God, remember the story? Satan poses the question that wasn't even being asked. He walks up to Eve and he says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of the fruit of the tree? Where did that come from? He starts out his conversation with a question. She said, well, God said if we eat of the tree, we will die. Satan's response, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will be as God, knowing good and evil, being able to see light and darkness. Satan lied to her, but she bought into the lie because she wanted to be like Satan as God. She wanted more. So man's desire is constantly for more, to fill that vacuum, the God-shaped vacuum that Baskell talked about. To comprehend false religion, and that's what we're looking at this morning. It's really a very short study. To comprehend it, we have to actually go back to the time in Genesis when man first started chasing after false religion. So I'm going to read to you. You're not going to see it on the screen. 
the account in Genesis chapter 11 when man first exalted himself through the construction of the Tower of Babel. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn with me. I'm just going to read along. My translation is NASB, New American Standard Version. Genesis chapter 11, and it's just a few verses here that describes man's desire to exalt himself by building something that was significant, that would represent his ability to reach to heaven. This is how it goes. Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east, that means mankind, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. This is the point in time in human history when man decided we are not content just to live upon the face of the earth, but to construct something to represent that we were here and we are important. And this land of Shinar is a region known today as Babylon in the region of Iran and Iraq. To clarify it for you a little bit further, let me take you to a quote on the screen from John MacArthur. You can follow along here, and this is his take on what happened in this particular situation. Journeying east after the flood, Noah's descendants arrived at the site of Babylon, the land of Shinar. In history's first great humanistic effort, they decided to build a monument to themselves to make for themselves a name. Brick towers like the one they built, known as ziggurats, had on their tops the sign of the zodiac which was used by pagan priests to chart the stars. Through their observation of the stars, the priests supposedly gained spiritual insights and knowledge of the future. Such blatant, defiant rebellion against God is incredible on the part of those to whom the flood was a recent event. God judgmentally scattered those proud rebels from Babel, and they took their false religion around the world with them. The devil, who deceived the people at Babel, from there launched false religion over the earth. Let me show you an artist's conception of what most individuals, especially archaeologists, believe that this ziggurat, this tower of Babel, looked like. Let's go with the first slide. Pretty simple structure, made of clay bricks, fired stone, but it has a very distinctive shape to it, doesn't it? Let's look two more slides forward. Bring the next ones up. Do you notice a similarity? See, as the people of the earth were scattered as a result of the Tower of Babel and moved across the face of the earth, they took with them this desire, this longing to worship God's small g and began constructing the same type, architecturally the same type buildings around the face of the earth. So individuals would say, How in the world could the Mayans and the Incas build something that looks so similar to what the Egyptians built in Egypt? How in the world did the Native Americans in Oklahoma build pyramids that look so similar to those that are in Egypt and the Mayan temple ruins? Because of what individuals carried with them around the face of the earth, this longing to build something to exalt themselves, to be able to worship 
deities other than the God creator. It was the longing within man's heart. Babylon is at the root of all this God worship. Babel, the Tower of Babel, that's where it comes from. What did the Babylonians believe that was so egregious to God? Let me show you what God says himself from Scripture. This is all set up to Revelation 17. Last verse here I want you to see before we move into it. Isaiah 47, 8. Now then, hear this, he's speaking to Babylon, you sensual one who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I am God, who says in your heart, I am. The people of Babylon, of Babel, who exalted this tower, whom God is condemning at this point, had exalted themselves to the same place that Satan had, exalting themselves to the point where they're saying, I am. The very name that God used for himself when he talked to Moses, Moses said, what should we call you? I am that I am. These individuals, we find, have exalted themselves to the same degree where they're saying, I am, I am God. That's what God has against mankind who worships anything other than God the Creator. God the Creator with big G won't tolerate any other gods. So Revelation 17 speaks specifically to the fall of false religion in the end times. So if you have your Bibles with you and you don't mind turning over to Revelation chapter 17, we're going to take on the first big chunk. You're going to see very quickly why I didn't want to teach this passage this morning. (laughs) Okay, let's take a look at the first six verses. Revelation 17, verse 1, and you'll find it up on the screen as well. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations, and of the unclean things of her immorality, and on her forehead... A name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witness of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Me too. I wondered greatly what I was going to teach on when I read this. Anybody wants to volunteer, this would be a good time to do it. God sees to it this morning that we have a really unique opportunity to learn. And giving us Revelation 17 like he did is a bit of a mystery up till this point. But fortunately, in the next verse, we begin to see that the angel explains what's going on. Before we get into that, I'm just going to give you a couple guidelines before we step into understanding this. First of all, the great harlot is not an actual prostitute, okay? She is a a metaphor for false religion. 
So the great harlot's not an actual prostitute. In Scripture, when you see the great harlot, harlotry, especially in the Old Testament, is a metaphor for false religion or apostasy. And her association with the kings of the earth is a, a referral to the scope of influence that false religion will have in the last days. The influence that it will have will be immense. It will cover the entire globe. But not just the kings of the earth, not just the influential people, all who dwell on the earth will be affected by the false religion, the one world system of religion that's coming. Every single individual caught up in it, they will passionately be intoxicated with antichrist religion. They will be consumed. That void that individuals feel in their heart, this vacuum, will be fulfilled by the worship of antichrist. Now we see also in that very first six verses that she's clothed in purple. Those are the colors of royalty and they speak to prosperity and nobility and and wealth. And it also says that she's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. means that this is a very successful world religion. It's acquired great resources. That's very important to know as we move into this. And it says also in her hand is a gold cup. The gold cup that's containing what? It said it was, she's being drunk on the death of the saints of God. God spoke specifically to that issue of the gold cup of Babylon back in the book of Jeremiah. Look with me up on the screen, Jeremiah 51.7. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are going mad. It says on her head in that section, you noticed, that it's written, something is very specifically written across her forehead. It was customary in Old Testament times, in ancient days, and in the time of Jesus, that prostitutes would get ink and they would write their name on their forehead so that individuals walking the streets looking for a prostitute would identify them very quickly because they wore their name as a label on their forehead. They were totally shameless about what they did for a living, didn't care a bit. And so written on the prostitute's forehead, on the harlot's forehead, is this name. And what's the name that it says? Babylon the Great. Babylon is the symbol in Scripture for all worldly resistance to God. Everything that pushes God away and exalts itself is referred to as Babylon, anti-God or anti-Christ. Notice that so great was the influence, so powerful is this world religion, that it's actually called the mother of harlots, meaning the mother of false religion. So if you think back to that time in Shinar, the building of the ziggurat, the pyramid, the false religion being birthed there, that area being called Babel, later becoming Babylon, it's the birthplace of false religion where Satan inspired man to move against God and the birth of false religion took place. Now we notice one other thing before we move into the rest of the text. She's drunk, but not drunk with alcohol. She's drunk with the blood of the saints. And this is a reference to what you've learned earlier about the raging martyrdom that takes place on planet Earth in the last days in which Christians are executed left and right. And so false religion becomes powerful. This ancient religion becomes more powerful on Earth because of the execution of the competition. What's one way to become a powerful resource on Earth? Eliminate the competition. So false religion exalts itself 
kills all of Christianity, whatever they can get their hand on, executing, exalting itself, and the Antichrist comes alongside it and promotes it. So what you're seeing here is a promotion as they're annihilating the opposition. That's why she's drunk on the blood of the saints. John is so appalled by what he's seen at this point that it ends by saying, he wondered greatly. Thalmazo megas. I wondered greatly. Look at the word thalmazo with me up on the screen. To have an admiration, marveled, to be amazed, surprised, to wonder at something with attentive interest. We would thamadzo when we see those first six verses and say, what's going on here? This is an amazing description. Unfortunately, the angel's watching and God gives us the commentary. So let's pick it up in verse 7. And the angel said to me, why do you thamadzo? Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So we see this woman sitting on the scarlet beast. And remember, the beast we found in Revelation is the Antichrist, right? So we see the beast, the scarlet beast, and it refers to the Antichrist. And she's sitting on the beast, which indicates that the Antichrist is supporting her. So the Antichrist is supporting the world religion. They're working together. Verse 8, the beast that you saw, this is where you really need your mystery-solving skills, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder, they will thamadzo when they see the beast, that he was and is not and will come. So the first reference we see there is to the beast, says it right there, second word, the beast that you saw, we understand this is the Antichrist, the most powerful ruler in the history of the world, a military genius, politically gifted, an orator, someone who manipulates the world around him, a skillful, skillful politician. So scripture portrays him as an intellectual genius. I see no one on the world landscape right now that looks like the description that comes out of Scripture. This guy is someone who will dominate the world scene. But it says that he was and is not and is about to come. That's speaking specifically of what we believe to be the death and resurrection of the Antichrist. Whether it's a staged death or not, we don't really know. Scripture isn't very clear. But in being like Christ, like Jesus, he will be executed and resurrected. That's the image he's going to present to the world. So that's why it says he was and is not and is about to come. And he's going to use that miracle of whether it's a staged death or a real death and the resurrection to his benefit to convince the world that he should be worshipped. Now, these events that you're reading about take place approximately halfway through the tribulation. These events that you're reading about in chapter 17 and chapter 18, they kind of stop the clock. There's a timeout going on. We've read about everything all the way up to the Battle of Armageddon, like last week. And now 17 and 18 are inserted into the chronology, and they're kind of like going back in time. And it's showing us what's taking place in the beginning of the tribulation and midway. So about halfway through the tribulation, we understand that there will be some type of an assassination attempt 
on this global world leader. And it appears that he's killed, and all the world will wonder. This is what it says. They will wonder that he was, that he is not, and that he has come again, that he will come. They're thamadzo. They're amazed that this one has been resurrected. So it moves into verse 9, and the angel says that you need wisdom to understand this. Look at it. Here is the mind which has wisdom, meaning it requires understanding. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is the other, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. So the angel's saying, pay attention, warning, you need to pay really close attention to this. Only those who know the truth will be prepared to stand against the deception. You need wisdom to recognize the enemy. So the angel's saying, you need to understand God's truth, and I'm going to explain it to you so that you have the capacity to recognize the enemy. The seven heads are seven mountains. Well, the text plainly identifies what that is. The seven world empires. Five have fallen. What are the five that have fallen? Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Think about it. Alexander the Great, Greece, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, the pharaohs, Egypt, Medo-Persia, Assyria. All these five kingdoms have fallen by the time John sees this revelation. John sees the revelation. These five empires have gone into the way of the dust. One is... The one that is, is the Roman Empire. They're the ones that sentenced John to the island of Patmos. So the angel is saying, John, five have fallen. One is, that's Rome, and one is about to come. The other one that's about to come is the Antichrist, the one world empire. So you've got the seven. Five fallen, one is Rome, and one is about to come, the empire, the Antichrist. Henry Morris spoke to this. He's a theologian. Here's his quote up on the screen. Babylonia, Egypt, Assyria, Persia, Greece, and Rome were all strongholds of world religion, of evolutionary pantheism, and idolatrous polytheism. Thus, they appropriately are represented as six heads on the great beasts that support the harlot. And it ends by saying, he must remain a little while, meaning The Antichrist empire is very short-lived. It's a really brief period of time. It won't be around very long. We understood from Revelation 13 that he has the authority to act for 42 months, three and a half years, and then it's over. So move with me into verse 11. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. (laughs) Anybody want to take a shot at that one? Okay, read that really closely. The beast which was and is not, himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. How can the Antichrist be an eighth and also one of the seven? Sounds like a riddle from the Joker on Batman, doesn't it? So there's a mystery here. Okay, here's the answer for it. And the answer is in the first part, the beast which was and is not. The beast which was is one of the seven and then dies and is not and is coming again and when he comes back, he's an eighth. So he's the same person. 
The beast which was and is not is the seven and is also one of the eighth. So now with that in your mind, look at it again. Verse 11, the beast which was and is not is also himself an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. So what we understand is before his death and resurrection and then afterwards, he is the seventh and the eighth at the same time. I'm glad the angel explained this because that would be a really tough one. Okay, verse 12. The ten horns which you saw, this is a lot more like a college classroom this morning, isn't it? This is not so much like a message, but this is really important information to understanding the book of Revelation. Verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called the chosen and faithful. That's you, by the way. You're called the chosen and faithful. It's talking about you right there in Scripture. Because it tells us in Scripture, we learned that a couple weeks ago, that when Jesus returns, when he comes back and fights against the Antichrist, that there's armies behind him on white horses and white clothing, the armies of heaven, that's us, the redeemed of the Lord. And here you're talked about right here in Scripture. You can tell your friends, I've been written about in the Bible, let me show you. I'm called the chosen and faithful, that's you, the chosen and faithful. But it says that the kings of the earth received their authority for one hour, That means a really brief time, a very short period of time. And they have one specific purpose. Their one purpose is to give their power and their authority to the beast. Now, these ten kings cannot be known. Their identity has not been revealed. Part of what the angel is talking about here will only be known to those who are living in the last days. A lot of theologians believe that it's the modern-day European kingdom right now, the Ten Nation or the United European Confederacy. Have no idea. It could be. It could be that they play a role in it. But these ten kings that are being referred to have not yet come. That's what Scripture says. They will arrive when the Antichrist arrives. Now, I remember a lot of speculation back in the 70s because there were nine European countries in the European Union And everybody looked at it and said, well, how could there possibly be a tenth? And then East Germany and West Germany became one and became one nation. And people are like, well, obviously, logically, that's the tenth European Union nation being added. We have no idea. It's all speculation. What Scripture says is that they have one agenda, and their agenda is to wage war against the Lamb at Armageddon. That's what we learned about last week. The battle of Armageddon has one particular agenda by these individuals to wage war against the Lamb. Let me take you back to what we read last week. Revelation 16, look up on the screen. This is what John saw. And I saw three unclean spirits. They are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. That's what it's being referred to here. They have one purpose, to give their authority to the Antichrist for a brief time for the battle of Armageddon. 
There's an unknown author. I can't tell you who wrote this. I want to show you the quote, though, because I think it's really, really insightful, especially as it applies to today and our world global economy, our global religions, our global political systems. This is a very insightful comment. Look with me up on the screen. False religion is an essential element of Antichrist's final world empire holding together his military, economic, and political structure. Only religion can unite the world in the most compelling way. Politics, economics, even military force are unable to overcome the world's cultural diversity. Only religion with its appeal to the supernatural can transcend the physical, geographical, historical, economic, and cultural barriers to world unity. Here's why I think that's really insightful. It's very true that a Christian taken from here today and placed in Africa or Russia, China, South America, and meeting another Christian immediately has a bond, a commonness in Christ, okay? It's very true also that if you took a Muslim, a person of Muslim belief, a person of Islam, and move them to another location on the world and put them in an environment where there's other Muslims, they immediately have a common bond. Now, we've seen in the last several years how in the world a military force cannot fight successfully against a religious power in the Middle East. Once that's established and entrenched, the religious power, no matter what, keeps coming back. They keep coming back. They keep coming back because it's ingrained deep within them. So this is a very insightful comment that says, essentially, false religion will be the glue that will bind everything together for the Antichrist in the last days. That's why it's really important to understand Revelation 17. So we move on to verse 15. And he said to me, angel speaking again, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. In the scriptures, especially in ancient times, when a city sat beside a waterway or a river, it was considered a city of great influence, especially cities that sat by large waterways. We learned about that last week with Babylon sitting astride the Tigris and the Euphrates, a powerful entity because it had a waterway, a source for moving commerce up and down the waterway. So we see that here, that the waters which she sits next to are speaking of the influence of this world religion, that it's a powerful world religion, and it will have great influence upon what? Every multitude, every nation, and every tongue. So way different than right now, far from being separated, world religion and world state will not be separated, but will be a unification of church and state. So you're seeing in the last days, they're united as never before in history. World religion, world politics, world government, world economy, the state and the church working together. So verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. A very interesting The Antichrist uses the world religion in the last days, uses the global church to gain power. He's assassinated, resurrected, and then at that point, 
no longer needs the world church, but now wants to be worshipped himself. And so he does away with this, and that's what it's speaking here in verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot, that's at the middle point of the tribulation, and will make her desolate and naked, meaning they're going to take everything from the world church, all the wealth, all the resources, and what was beautiful in our first verse is now naked. This is really, really graphic language of some extreme violence. Look at how it's described. They will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh and will burn her with fire. Antichrist will utterly and completely obliterate anything standing in his way because he wants to obtain glory for himself. So what you see here now is the Antichrist who's infused with Satan, who is possessed by Satan, wants the world to do what? Worship him. So it all comes back from the beginning right to the end. What started out with Satan wanting to be worshipped has come full circle all the way around to the last days. The Antichrist does away with the world church and commands that everyone begin worshipping him. Why does all this happen? Verse 17 answers it for us. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. Verse 18 answers a whole mystery for us. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Mystery is solved. Eventually, Antichrist will come to hate the harlot, false religion, will do away with her because Satan wants the worship of the world, but only for himself. So God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose. The plan of the ages is unfolding. God's perfect plan, God's sovereign will, now is being unfolded here in the last day. It's amazing to watch this story develop and how it matches up to our world system. So let me finish the quote for you that started in the very beginning of the service when I quoted Blaise Pascal. The first part of it said what? First part said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. You may not know this, but Blaise Pascal was also a believer in Jesus Christ and held a strong witness for him. Look at the remainder of the quote. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus. Amen, church? Absolutely. Written in the 1600s, still true today. As a result of the fall of man, we no longer really seek after God the way that Adam and Eve did when they walked with God in the garden. Jesus and God both said that I have to draw men to myself. Look with me on the screen. Romans 3.11, there is none who seeks for God. Jesus took it one step further. This is what he said. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God graciously and mercifully, though a man no longer seeks after him, still calls us. That is amazing, church. Here's why. If you have come to God, even if he's tugging on your heart right now, it's the work of God. It's the voice of God 
calling you. You, the faithful and chosen, called to worship him, to seek after him. Those who don't know Christ yet, who are not in relationship, when you hear the tugging on your heart, that's God's voice. That's God calling you. Satan wouldn't call you to God. That's the voice, the Holy Spirit of God, calling you and drawing you. That's what that passage says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God himself has drawn you into this relationship. That is astounding. So I would say, like John, that's the mazo. I wonder greatly at that. How amazing. Let's pray, church. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to celebrate the Lord's table this morning. Thank you for giving the institution of communion, that you caused this to be something in place that we would remember every time we do it, the great price that was paid to buy us back from the slavery of sin. God, thank you that there is one God, you, and that you redeemed us through the work of Jesus Christ, your Son. We declare as a body of believers that there is no other path to you but through Jesus Christ. And so we come before you thanking you for the instructions you've placed before us, for these words written down this morning. Even though some of them remain a mystery, God, we know that you placed them there so that we would know more of you. I ask, Father, for my friends as we take on this week, that we leave this auditorium, this church building, going out into the things that we have to do, knowing that you called us and you want us for your own. It's in Jesus' name we declare this. Amen. Have a great week.